Look at you, man. You're in your podcast studio there with all your pre-accident investigation books up on the wall. This is where it happens. This is where the magic is made or the sausage. So what do I do? I call you king or your Um, highness, your eminence. Just put Esquire at the end. Esquire. That's all that really matters. Dude, I'm a civil servant. I clean toilets for a living. I, uh, I sweep the, uh, the sidewalks. I swear in junior rangers. I pull cacti out of people's fingers. I do it all. I'm glad. You're the right person to do it all. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pre-Accident Podcast. I'm Todd Conklin. How are you this fine day? Can we say we can say that, can't we? I don't know. I I don't know how to process everything we're going through fully. I mean, I I think I'm getting better at processing it, but I don't really know what everything means. Like, it's not it's not normal yet, and nor do I think it will be normal. But here we are in the midst of whatever in the midst of, and it's just getting slowly and progressively more tedious if that's the word don't get i'm not depressed or anything but it's just it's it's tedious but i'm getting used to a lot of stuff it's interesting how you normalize so quickly to uncertainty i mean you really do normalize quickly to uncertainty too there's no question about that and and that i think is an interesting opportunity for us when you think about it all the way around it's it's um it's it's a chance to sort of rewrite the future and to formulate, to become something, you can use this opportunity to become something different or better or unusual, whatever, like learn to ride a unicycle or something. I don't know, there's tons of stuff you could do. And that potential is really good. I'm in a super good mood today, but only because of the person I got to talk to. So today's podcast is um, energetic and joyful and encouraging at a bunch of levels. It's kind of cool. We're going to talk to David Smith, Ranger Smith who is the superintendent of the Joshua Tree National Park. And if you've not been there, the park is amazing. It was really, it's been amazing forever. I mean, forever. But it was made famous by an album made by a band called U2, which you may not know. But you may know, right? And that park has always had a special place for lots of people uh, of a certain generation and David's the the jefe. He's the he's the superintendent of that park, and we've been in conversation because he, as so many of his peers in the park service, is really in a position where he thinks about safety a lot, and he thinks about safety for the park visitors, which is vital and super important. But he talks about in this podcast the safety of the workers at the park, and I think that's even kind of more interesting for us and kind of what they're doing and what they're thinking and how they've leveraged some some things that we've done to actually dramatically improve their performance. So that's what today's about, and, and it's, it's a sweetie. I mean, you're going to like it. Tell your friends, invite the neighbors, pull up a chair, and uh, sit back and enjoy this because he's just he's a fun person. And so that's exciting. And we talk about his claim. He's got a claim to fame. I mean, this, is, this podcast is filled with intrigue and information, it's kind of mysterious. It's got it all. I mean, everything you could ever want a podcast to have, it's here. It's right here. And so that's good. And other than that, um, it's September. 
And fall is by far the best time of year to be in a place like New Mexico where the air smells like chilies and, and, you know, it's a little chilly in the evenings, but it's beautiful during the day, that kind of thing. I'm not bragging. I'm just saying that's, that's what we have. So that's, uh, that's always joyful, even in the midst of a pandemic and worldwide uncertainty and locusts and ants crawling out of your skin and fires. There's certainly a ray of sunshine every morning when you wake up, and that's encouraging as well and, and helpful, I think. It is helpful. I promise you it's helpful. So that part's good as well. And I hope you're doing good. So it seems like a really interesting time to be in our position because there are just so many complexities aligning in such a way that you're certainly busy and always learning new stuff. And I think that's encouraging as well. Starting to see some fluctuation around employment, which always worries me, uh, just because I, I want everybody to be happy and rich and have a fulfilled life. That's really, that's my only requirement for you. So try to meet that, will you? But that part is probably part of an ongoing conversation that we'll have even past this one. I think this is, I think we're in this for a while and it's interesting to see what that means. And we'll find out. I mean, that's, that's a part of what we'll find out. I think the best thing to do is put the podcast on. So this is a conversation with David Smith, National Park Service Superintendent of Joshua Tree National Park, and his understanding of safety and leadership in a complex, ever-moving environment. Enjoy this, will you? And it's neat. And you're the superintendent of Joshua Tree. How long have you been there? Uh, I got to Joshua Tree about six years ago, but um, John and I started working here, uh, oh my God, it's almost 30 years ago. So 20, 27 years ago, he got a job working down at Cottonwood as uh-huh. the law enforcement ranger down in the southern portion of the park. And I started volunteering down there. And then I was able to nab uh, a interpretive job. So those are the rangers that talk to people. Right. And uh, we had a wonderful, you know, five, six years here working in a remote duty station where we made our, our power with the sun and we had a well and no phone service. And it was a, a wonderful, it was a wonderful six or seven years down there. It sounds like quarantine kind of, it sounds amazing. You know, you know, it was, it was when I was stationed down there, it was during Y2K. Right. Of course. We, you know, like this is like the one safe place in the United States to be was, you know, at a little ranger station in the middle of nowhere. If things got really bad, we thought we'd take the bulldozer and block off the road so that we were you know, kind of safe. Down <laughs> that is perfect. And then you put on your little foil hat and went on from there. <laughs> not quite that bad. No, not that bad. But people will know you because your real claim to fame is that you were ranger the, what would they call you on uh on the science bill nye the science guy oh i, I think it was ranger, ranger smith, ranger ranger smith. I, I, I was gonna say ranger day but i think it's ranger smith yeah that, that was that was the uh the high point in my career in the national park service was being a a gs3 seasonal ranger working on a sunday afternoon when bill nye comes into the building and says hey let's go film some dinosaurs and I was so excited to, you know, like take him to some, you know, special dinosaur locations around the park, not knowing that you're supposed to have a filming permit, not knowing that <laughs> I really probably should have sold someone I was going to be on film at the time. But uh, God, that was fun. And what's really fun is I got a call from my daughter's teacher the other day who said, hey, we just saw you in our classroom. We were showing Bill Nye the Science Guy. <laughs> that was 30 years ago. And you still look as young as you did then. 
Exactly. Then yeah. that's all that matters. Put on, put on a little bit of pounds around the waist, but otherwise, oh, no, that, that's we call that uh, character. That's that's called character. That is okay. Character. Thank you. So, I, I, I'm developing more and more character as the years go by. <laughs> so you run a safety program at a national park. What are your challenges? Gosh. Uh, so I, I, you know, imagine imagine you're working in a place that's a little bit smaller than Delaware, and you've got about. 3 million people that are coming into it each year. And you've got a staff of about 100 people or so to, to take care of them all. And that's, that's the operation. And in this, in this park, you've got, you've got a law enforcement division who, you know, responsible for enforcing all you know, federal codes and other various things. You've got a search and rescue division who are you know, responsible for, for saving people's lives and, and taking care of them. You've got a fire department. So we have two wild, wildland fire engines and their crews that are working inside the park. Uh, you've got teachers, a whole bunch of them called rangers. Those are interpretive folks that are working with children every day inside the park, taking them on, on adventures. You've got a pretty intensive uh, infrastructure crew. So we've got oh, about 200 miles of roads inside the park that have to be maintained. And so you've got road crews working on them. You've got 520 campsites that have to be cleaned out every day and 96 vault toilets that have to be washed out every single day. Um, I mean, it's, it's a, it's an amazing picture because, uh, you know, there's, I, I care about these people a lot. I, I care about my staff. They're part of my family. So I, I need to make sure they're taking care of themselves. I care about the visitor visitor because they're the ones who own the park, you know, and we need to take care of it for them. Um, but I, I also worry because, Park service people, and like like most civil servants, um, they will go beyond what they are capable of doing. Right. So there's there's convictions of the heart that come into play. That maybe if you're working at at um, Widgets International, you don't have the same convictions of the heart. Maybe you really do care about widgets. I don't know. But when you when you really care about a national park, you are willing to put in a 12 hour day. You want to. If you're on a rescue, you know you'll do a 16 hour day. You know the other night. We had a search for some guys that were hiking, and it was a super, super hot day. And uh, uh, we were really concerned about uh, this whole group. Well, it turns out one of the guys ended up perishing from uh, heat-related illnesses. And you know, when I got on scene, it was 9:30 at night, and it was it was still over 100 degrees. And so, so this 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 man, um, you know, dies out in the field. I, you know, I, I've had staff that are out there that have been giving him CPR, trying to keep him alive. But, but he's, he's gone at this point. So then I have to order the same staff back to the location to sit with the body, you know, during the course of the evening so that, you know, critters don't come to, uh, it would is still considered a crime scene because uh, someone has died there until you're in the corner out there. You really can't clear the area. It's too far out to carry the body back. It's also still a hundred degrees. So I'm not going to have my, my volunteers and my staff out there in the middle of the night carrying a body, you know, two miles across the desert. So you know, I, I worry about these guys because that's, you know, it's really pushing the limits of what you can physically do. And they're, they're willing to do it. Oh, my gosh, they work 24 hours. My job is, as the safety manager, being the superintendent, is to make sure that we don't push them beyond uh, what, you know, what they can reasonably and safely do in a day. Because we know, we know, man, if you don't sleep, if you work beyond your limits, you make more and more mistakes. And it's more likely that you're going to get yourself in danger as well. So how do you manage that? Because that's, that's a really interesting challenge. You hire good people. So that's, that's the Selection. one, you know, I, I think that is the foundation. You know, you get, you get smart people that are working on your crew 
that are looking out for others' interests. And then you empower those people to be able to make decisions in the field. So hopefully they, they've got the tools in their tool belt at that point that they know. Uh, well, so we, what we use in the park service is something called operational leadership. And it's, it's our foundational kind of safety tool that we use that says that if you are in a situation and you think that situation is unsafe, you, have, you are fully authorized to stop all work there. And if you see someone else in a situation that's unsafe, that's uh, one of your coworkers, you can stop that operation from moving ahead. So getting that premise into the minds of people that we do not want them to go beyond their ability. We do not want them to put them in a, safe, in a situation where they cannot mitigate what they have to do. Because let's face it, if you're, a, if you're a law enforcement ranger, you have to pull people over that are breaking the law. And it may be late at night and the radio signal may not be as good as it needs to be to, to call in a dispatch. But you've got to figure out a way to do it in such a way that you can mitigate those dangers and do it safely. And that's, that's the key, giving your staff that ability to make those decisions, training them to a level that they, they have the, the tools they need, and then empowering them to say, you know what? It's not safe for me to do this. My boss does not want me to pull this person over right now because I cannot mitigate the situation. So those are those are some of my my kind of foundational kind of thoughts. So let me pull the string on that, because I, I would suggest that you set up a really interesting dichotomy. You have a workforce that cares a whole lot and an important mission that's easy to get behind. And you've told them to recognize failure before it happens. But we both know that it's hard to recognize failure before it happens. And so I would suggest the operational leadership idea in theory is probably quite powerful. But in practice, I wonder if it leaves something to be desired. I wonder if it's as strong and as rigid as you think it is. But, but I'm just asking. Well, I, I know that it has gotten me through the last 25 years of, of the Park Service. And I have watched our safety numbers get better and better. Uh-huh. I watched, uh, you know, as an agency. The whole reason we came up with operational leadership is we were losing so many employees each year, you know, to injury. We were, we were right up there with Border Patrol and Customs with the number of people that were being injured in the line of duty. And, you know, we continue to get better and better every year uh, by, which I think is empowering our employees to make those decisions they need to make. So I, I've seen some success, Todd. It may not be the perfect system, but right now for the Park Service, it's moving us in the right direction. And I think there's benefit to that. And I think that's powerful because I'm relatively certain the perfect system doesn't exist. I, at least I've I don't not know. I've, I've, I've read, you know, the pre-accident, you know, investigation. <laughs> I, I think the perfect system might be the other, which actually brings me up to a really good point. Um, something that we've incorporated here at Joshua Tree are, you know, the, the learning team model that we've gotten from you. And that has been so powerful, man. Oh, it has great. totally changed the dynamics of things. That's amazing. So tell me more. I, I will tell you more. Okay, so so here we are. Uh, we get a we get a near miss call, and this was a, a year or so ago. And it, it's a really really busy springtime. We're getting about thirty thousand people into the park a day. Wow. We have we have rangers out there on the road doing traffic control, and so we're not just our, our normal traffic control rangers. We've got like our botanist out there, and we've got our wildlife biologists and secretaries, you know, helping to coordinate traffic control inside the park. And, uh, you know, someone was working traffic, and a, a vehicle turns around a corner and, you know, lightly brushes her on her backside. You know, 
frankly, that's a near miss when a car touches you yeah. uh, on the road. And so, you know, we immediately brought together a learning team and that was made up of, of her, which was a botanist. Uh, it was made up of one of our law enforcement rangers. It was made up of some of our maintenance employees oh, good. and our safety officer and me. And we sat around, you know, going through her day and man, we, we just, we learned so much, you know, she had worked in this park for about 10 years and you know, my big takeaway was she didn't know how to use the park radio. She wow. didn't know how to call for assistance when that happened. She didn't know how to check in with the other park lot attendant on the radio system because no one had actually sat her down to really go over radios. And, you know, maybe, you know, you're living in, in the big city of Santa Fe. You probably don't need a radio to talk to your chums who live down the block, but we don't have phone service out here. We don't have cell service. You know, the only way you're going to talk to someone is, you know, how to use a radio. And so that was like, it was a really big takeaway there uh, that we don't have. Uh, another thing was, you know, some, some safety PPE that we'd never even thought about in those areas. Uh, we brought in uh, our, our road foreman, you know, at that particular situation as well, you know, the, the way you have that sign position that says, you know, a flagger ahead, there's no chance for the drivers to actually see it. You never really, you know, you put a sign there, but you never vetted it to see if anyone could actually see the sign wow. that would actually protect her. So, you know, some really good lessons came out of that. We've been doing it ever since then. Every time we have a near miss or we have an accident inside the park, we pull together a learning team to look at that and look at the lessons learned. And often nine out of nine times out of 10, Todd, it has zero to do with actually the incident that took place. It's all this other stuff. So I think that is a super powerful tool. Well, I would, I would suggest that that's operational leadership. To me, I think the operational leadership tool that you've counted on that's been so effective for you is more about empowering the workforce and understanding that the experts and understanding the risk you guys deal with, which is super unique, are the people who do the work. I mean, I think that's beautiful and brilliant. Well, thank you very much. I, I, I once said, hire, hire good people, Todd, and you will, you will be well served in that process. Um, so um, so I, I think you've talked about it a little bit before, but sometimes there is a, uh, you know, when you work for a large organization uh, and uh, you are really working with numbers and you are really scared because you don't want that number that says 522 days since our last accident to turn to zero. Um, we have a tendency not to bring uh, these issues up. So it, it would have been very easy for this woman to totally um, push that incident off and say that that was not a near miss and that it was her fault that she got, you know, caressed by a car, you know, <laughs> out on the, on the roadway. But no, she felt safe and felt, she felt obligated to come forward and say, hey, look, this is a dangerous situation that I was part of. Let's figure this out. And so that's, that's an important mechanism that, that, you know, in operational leadership, we celebrate, but I think a lot of cultures across the country don't, they don't celebrate that you, you hide, you hide those injuries as much as possible. You hide those near misses, which is, is to everyone's detriment. How much protection protections, maybe the wrong word, but how much, how much do you run interference between the larger bureaucratic organization and the actual workers on your park? Because there must be some interfaces that you sort of say go, no go on uh, that impacts the culture that you've created. It's a tough question, I, but it's a good one. I, I would, okay, so, so in any large bureaucratic organization, uh, you know, th there's going to be that, that you know, the, the office you know, stretched from the workers and there's going to be issues and there's going to be a middleman. The intent from up on high is great. 
you know, honestly, they, they put a lot of thought. And I think, you know, COVID-19 might be a good, you know, example to look at that. Yeah. You know, I've got, God, we've got the CDC, you know, that's coming out with some really good regulations. I've got my agency, the Park Service, which comes out with policy, a whole bunch of safety policy. You've got U.S. Public Health Service coming out with, with their mandates and their oversight. So I've got all these good people coming out with really good data. Um, but sometimes it's, it's a couple weeks or months behind where we are actually out in the field. So, you know, one of my jobs is to actually be able to ground test things. Right. And you know, to be here and say, okay, you're telling me right now that, you know, that the PPE that we've designed for you is actually causing more problems than benefits. Uh, and, you know, the, the folks up on hire say, no, this is, this is, we're trying to protect and save lives. So my job is to be there and say, be able to say, hey, what, this PP is not working really well. I remember, so this was about 15 years ago. I was working at Grand Canyon and uh, we had, you know, fall protection. And I, I was working at a visitor center that I had a, had a second story. It had a little uh, walls around it, but you had to shovel off the snow during a snowstorm or that roof was going to collapse. So obviously there was a problem there. We probably needed to design that roof in such a way that it wouldn't collapse. That is a structural problem yeah. that should have been corrected a hundred years ago, but uh, it wasn't going to happen. It was a historical building. It was taking a while to look at it, but I, you know, I had to go out there and shovel that snow, which was great for me. It kept me in shape, but it's on, it's the second floor of a building. And I had to, you know, I had to go through fall protection and put on the harness and strap it down and go out there and shovel and I found myself tripping over the fall protection way more than I ever tripped over the wall that was protecting me from falling off the side. So in a situation like that, we've got some really good ideas and policy that are coming from high up. You know, if you're, if you're above six feet, you got to have fall protection on. But I was finding that actually the implementation of it was actually causing more of a threat. So what did you end up doing? Um, I would occasionally not have it on because if I, th- if I thought it was too dangerous... I would, uh, if I was in the middle of the roof, I would take it off. If I was getting near the edge, if I was getting close enough to the edge, I would put it back on. So, Had, had you been I, monitored, would you have been in trouble? I, I'd like to think that operational leadership would have been around at that time enough so that I could right. articulate that. And I felt safe being able to articulate that. I was much younger. I wasn't quite as, as confident as I am now, Todd. You're in, I, was, I, was, I was a little ranger back then. You're an incredibly confident ranger now, a TV star ranger, and that's why we like you. All from Bill Knight. All started there. That's where the magic started. That's the magic. What is it as a leader that you do to inspire really not just the confidence, because I think they take care of that as, as hiring good people and, and, and developing good people, but inspire the opportunity for them to speak openly and communicate with you? Because that seems like such an yeah. important part of, of the operational leadership definition you have. So, so celebrate, celebrate your misses. And get that, get it out there. You know, when you have an all employee meeting, you know, bring that situation up and say, Hey, this, you know, this is what Fred did. And man, I'm so thankful that Fred was willing to talk about this because it, it saved Ginger's lives, you know, in the future. Don't, you know, get it out there to the public. It, it is so difficult sometimes to communicate in an organization. I don't know, you know, what the best way is. I've got a good portion of my crew here that never turns on a computer. So if I expect to communicate with them through email or through Zoom, I'm a fool for thinking that's the case. Um, some people uh, do well in group meetings. Some don't do well in group meetings. So as a leader, you've got to use that shotgun approach and try as many different ways to communicate those messages. I find that in the men's room, 
reading material goes a long way. Guys <laughs> like to sit there and read. So if you put a flyer in the, the employee's restroom about some you know, important safety issue you're trying to get across, that's probably where people are actually going to read it. I don't know if that works well in the ladies' room, but it definitely works well in the, in the men's restroom. And with um, tension around toilet paper, it could also serve a second <laughs> function. Uh, yeah. Okay. I, I, that's, that's a very good point. Thanks for bringing that up, Todd. You're welcome. Um, so I, another thing is as a, as a leader, I, I think, you know, when it comes to like, you know, how we do things inside the park, um, I've got to be setting that example. So if I am out on a rescue, I am, I've got my goggles on, I've got my PPE on, uh, when it gets to, you know, when I work for 12 hours, I say it's time for me to go home right now because I can't safely drive after this point. You know, I, I've got to be willing to follow those rules and regulations that, you know, we've created as an agency to protect our staff. So I, I've got to set those examples. Now, not every organization is well suited for that. I don't expect the, the CEO of Ford to be on the assembly line a lot. But at a park like Joshua Tree, where you know, we only do have 100 employees, you will see me out in the field. You will see me hanging out with the maintenance guys and gals. Uh, you, you will see me in the entrance station wearing a vest. You know, every time I'm on the tarmac, I'm on the asphalt, I'm wearing a vest. And if I see someone who's not wearing a vest, I'm talking to them about it. I'm not criticizing them. I'm not laying, it, laying down the law. I'm just telling them, hey, for your safety, we have found that you wear an orange vest, you're much less likely to die. You know, here's a, a thing that I, so I, I'm not a uniform Nazi, you know, sometimes you'll find, you know, managers in the, in the agency that are really, really into starching your shirts, you know, making sure everything's perfect. But I am when it comes to wearing a hat outside. You know, when you go outside, it's part of our uniform. You wear your cover when you're outside. Ideally, you're wearing your flat hat. Which yeah. is the coolest of all hats. Oh, are you going to put it on? You so got ideally, it. You know, you're oh, man. This is, this is the hot. This is not only is it cool. Oh, man, you uh, look good. Uh, it actually serves many purposes, but I had a, a uh, I had a subordinate uh, who worked for me at Grand Canyon, who I, I love very very much, and he was uh, he was ten years younger than I was, and he just got married, and uh, he came down with uh, melanoma, and it got into his lymphatic system, and he died. Uh-huh. So um, you know that that lesson there taught me that we are rangers; we work outside all the time. You will wear your hat outside. And, you know, one thing I can do is say, this is, this protects you. You know, it's going to protect your ears. It's going to protect your nose. It's going to protect your lips from the sun. It's, it's a silly thing, but, you know, being able to make that connection, you know, like we, we lost someone because of this. Uh, I, I want you to wear your hat outside. It really does have an effect on, on the employees. So you're a good leader. How come? I didn't go that far. I, I, I think I'm pretty adequate. Okay, but, you're an adequate leader that I think is good. How come? What makes you adequate? That that question does not sing the way what makes you a good leader, but I'll go with it if you're comfortable. You put the hat on I, I, for I me, so I have to do anything. I, 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 it's hard to hear uh, nice things said about yourself. So, you know, there's certain personality types that probably deal with it better. I don't really deal with it really well. I. Uh, um, Let me rephrase the question. Let me ask it differently. What do you think the most important characteristics of a good leader are? Oh, it, it's got to be empathy. You know, it's got to be empathy for, for where your people are coming from. So if I, if, okay, so, so in the beginning of COVID, when we didn't really understand exactly what was happening, 
uh, we came up with a bunch of standards. You know, we ran them through U.S. Public Health Service and our county health offices to make sure we were good. You know, toilets was a big issue, Todd, for the first month or so because we thought they were hotbeds for COVID activity. So I, I had my custodial crew, you know, in there with Tyvex and N95 masks on and goggles and, you know, they would spray it down with bleach. They'd leave it for five minutes. They would, you know, air it out and then go in there. And I, I was watching, you know, one of my coworkers out there in the toilets just across the hall from me and I was watching him and he was beat red. And I, I went out there and I talked to him and I talked to his boss and it was rapidly apparent that if he was going to wear Tyvek and it was a hundred degrees outside, it was going to kill him. Um, and I, I, I care deeply about these, both these employees and I don't want them to get hurt. So that was not a really good <laughs> PPE solution to, and, and now we recognize that that was, that level of protection was not necessary for cleaning a bathroom. You know, uh, it was not as dangerous. And it, as soon as that science was out there, we quickly adapted to it, but I wasn't willing at that point to have him suffer, uh, like that because it would, it's bad. So empathy is, is an important part of being a leader and being willing to put yourself in their shoes. I, you know, I, I hang out in the entrance stations, you know, a fair amount, because I think it's one of the hardest jobs inside the national park because you have to be friendly all the time. You're asking people for money. You know, it, it's also a lot of physical contact during the time of COVID. So I, I need to be able to see, you know, what they're doing and understand and, and be able to put myself in their shoes so I, I think good leadership involves you doing that. And like I said, not every CEO can do that because their operation might be so big. Um, but I think it's important that you try or you have trusted people that are on your team that can go out there into those positions to make sure they can vet them and make sure it's safe. So that would be one of my, my biggest uh, tools in my arsenal is empathy. What do you have as a strategy moving forward around operational safety, operational discipline, the things you manage, what's next on your horizon? Um, so I, I, I love, I love small work groups um, and getting ideas from them. You know, the more often I can get coworkers together, ideally from different divisions, talking about issues, um, the more solutions I get for those problems. So in, in my, in my dream world right now, you know, I have like weekly meetings that are going on throughout the park at different locations that get firefighters hanging out with law enforcement, with, uh, with the botanist or with the wildlife biologist that are talking about a particular issue. We've got a, a bee infestation issue going on in the park right now. Uh, it's been drought for the last six months. We did, we did not get a monsoon system this year. Bees are coming to, to vehicles to get water from the air conditioning units, and it's becoming a, you know, a significant safety issue right now. And so this week, we, we brought together a group of, of campground rangers and uh, maintenance workers uh, and fee collectors, all these people that work in campgrounds, working with our biologists to come up with solutions to, to bees. And I, I'm sure that the solution they will provide will be far better than anything that my safety officer and I could have come up with between the two of us, because we're a bunch of knuckleheads compared to the energy and the synergy that comes from a bunch of people. So that would be my, my dream world is being able to really facilitate these small groups to deal with problems that come along. Did I not tell you that was going to be amazing? Did I not tell you? I told you, I warned you, you had plenty of warning. I'm just energized. So I do need to apologize. If you work for Widget International and you were offended, 
my bad. I should have uh, warned him that I have a lot of people that listen from Widget International. But if you don't work for him, then you probably weren't offended, so that's fine as well. To me, the lesson is in what he had to say, and, and I think it's so interesting, the ability to bring experts together to solve problems and to learn is really ultimately the operational excellence component. It's the operational discipline. I'm not sure I'm in love with that term, but it's, I don't work in the agency, so it's not my term to be in love with. But I do see some operational resilience and some operational engagement that is worthwhile and amazing. So that's the pod. Thank you, David Smith and the National Park Service for allowing him to be on the little podcast. That was very nice of you. You're sweet as can be. Anytime you need a you know, camp, set up your tent in my front yard, I'll let you. So there we go. That's the trade-off. Until then, I hope you learned something new every single day. You did today. There was lots to learn today. And, uh, you know, do something fun. Be kind to each other. That's really important. But most importantly, be safe.